1: You can't be a one-trick pony. You have to be a five-tool player in order to succeed in this game.
0: This is the Power Producers Podcast. Production redefined. Are you ready to feel the power?
1: What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Power Producers Podcast, where we are refining and redefining the sales game. Today, we have... I know I've said it before. I'm going to say it again. We have got an electric guest with us. This guy lives on LinkedIn. I'm honestly surprised to see bricks and mortar in the background right now because he 24 seven 365 is constantly putting out absolute gold. So much gold! I'd like to tell you his name is Rumple Stiltskin, but it's not. It's Josh Braun, and he is a sales guru. And why he is important to the Power Producers podcast audience is not just because he's a guest here today. But when we do Producers in Paradise in Key West in June of this summer, he is going to come and spend a couple of hours with us as our guest speaker, getting the weekend kicked off the right way. Oh, Kyle, an apology right out of the box. Worst year for your wife to get pregnant with your second child because you're going to miss this. Even though you have all the joy that comes with it, I have a feeling three weeks postpartum, you're going to be looking for Key West, and I'm going to be the guy that is going to FaceTime and wave to you from Key West while you're up changing diapers and rolling the baby over. So let's get kicked (laughs) off real quick. Josh, man, long intro. Thanks for coming on, man. Really, really appreciate it. Love following your content. Kyle, I don't even know if I told you the story. I think I'm almost 100% sure I showed you the video a few years ago when I saw it, but I found Josh originally when he was telling a story on a YouTube video of trying to sell a toaster to his grandmother. Do you remember it? I do. (laughs) Fantastic video, by the way. Yeah. Fantastic video. And I, I mean, that's what I like about what Josh does. It's not overly complicated, you know, and I don't mean any disrespect by saying that, but let's call it what it is, man. The sales game is pretty much common sense if you're willing to listen, right? So I wanna get this thing kicked off really quickly. Let's give them the, the sort of 10,000 foot overview of your background and, and kind of what you're doing today. And then we're gonna dive in and just, we'll talk sales for the next little bit and wrap this thing up.
2: Sure, so I started my sales career as a kindergarten teacher. And the product that I was selling was a love of reading and writing. And what you realize pretty early on is that kids won't read and write for your reasons as a teacher. I mean, you can lay out all the logical facts and reasons and tell them why reading is great and try to persuade them, but uh, they don't really care because those aren't their reasons. And so what you learn relatively early on as a teacher is that you have to find a student's underlying reasons and motivations for potentially wanting to read and write so that they'll want to read and write. And that seems to have a lot of Correlation to selling as well. I think traditional selling comes from this mindset that you think it's your job to talk people into buying, but and yet that often backfires. Whenever we're in a position where we're feeling controlled by a salesperson, we actually have the opposite effect. We resist. I mean, if you've ever been in a mall walking and a kiosk oh. person says, Can I ask you a question? The I feel like most guy, people sort of, the they sort of pick up the pace because you know you're about to be sold. Uh, so, my background is in teaching. And also in uh, Buddhism and uh, Stoicism and Zen, uh, mindfulness. So i have able to actually combine some things that are not typically associated with selling um, into selling um, all with the uh, big idea to actually not teach people how to persuade, but to actually teach people how to lower the resistance, or I call it the zone of resistance that people typically have around salespeople because of the bad reputation that salespeople have. And we've all had a bad experience with a salesperson. My, my first bad experience with a sales message was when I was seven years old, there was a comic <laughs> book that I was reading and I saw this ad. It was a sales message for something called sea monkeys. Oh and yeah. These things looked like they were like seven feet tall. You could train them. And I was going to train them to beat up my brother. Cause he was always picking them. And so I <laughs> saved up my money and I ordered these things. And it was the first time I was duped because you put them in water and they're brine shrimp and they die in like three days. They're certainly not six feet tall. And it was the first time that I had been tricked by a sales message, but it was not my last time. And I think everyone has an experience like that. So I'm really guarded um, around salespeople.
1: Yeah. And I'll tell you right now, man, the, the Buddhism, Stoicism, Zen, and mindfulness might not sound intuitive to the average person listening to this. but I, I mean, those principles apply across a number of things. I mean, it worked out pretty well for Phil Jackson and the Bulls, right? I yeah. mean, that's what Phil Jackson did as the coach of the Bulls is he brought that mindset. That's why they called him the Zen master. And so I think it's interesting you know, to think through those things. And you and I had a little bit of dialogue because I, a couple of weeks ago, when we were originally supposed to jump on this, I ran through another issue where I got into my own head and allowed my blood pressure to get elevated because I was freaking out because I hate going to the doctor. And anytime that I do leading up to that, I have myself as, you know, not having more than 90 days left to live and it freaks me out, right? And so, you know, just like 2 years ago, I actually put a post out on LinkedIn today and this thing is trending. It's it's crazy how many views it already has, but I put a post out today that sort of what changed my perspective when I turned 40? And my perspective changed pretty dramatically, man. I mean, I think that you get to a point in your life where we run hard, you know, there's no doubt about it. You have to. If you're going to be Successful in any kind of sales, there's a a period of time where you're working really, really, really hard to build up your pipeline and make sure that you're doing the things that you need to do to sustain revenue output moving forward. And we find out that we've been living for our job and pretty much nothing else. It was evidenced by the guys from IBM back in the 80s. You know, you read those stories where, you know, IBM was like the sales organization or one of them, anyhow, when I was growing up as a kid. And all these guys would get, you know, when when the computer markets started to shift and sales for IBM dropped and people started getting early retirement and leaving, there was an abnormally large number of people who died within a year of retiring because their entire existence was their job. And mm-hmm. I don't want to be that person, right? And so when I turned 40 and specifically when I had the the minor stroke that I had two years ago... I just finally drew a line in the sand and said, "You know what, Enough's enough. I, I can make a really good living doing what I'm doing, but I am not going to do that at the, at the expense of anything else. And primarily, you know, from a logical standpoint, I'm going to turn 50 this year. I can say with reasonable certainty, I have already lived over 50 percent of my life. Like with reasonable certainty, I can say that. What am I going to do for the rest of the time that I have on Earth, whether that's a day, a week, a month, a year or a decade, or more? to get the most out of it and leave the biggest impact that I can. And I think a lot of people talk about that because you know they think about they think people will like them more if they're they're talking about impact and not wanting to make money. I can tell you this much, if you ever ever faced with a situation where you could have been dead and you were spared, your outlook on life changes dramatically like right away. It 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 doesn't take a week to let that simmer in. And so I think it's interesting that, that that's the approach that you take. And I certainly have started reading a little bit based on just what you and I had talked about. But I have always been a big believer in the mind, the body, and the spirit having to be in complete alignment. I can tell you that the best best performance that I've ever had in my life, best performance is I've ever had in my life, is when I've been reading, you know, nonfiction books to make my mind sharper when I've been spending time meditating and, and reading through spiritual things, and then also when I'm on a regular workout regimen. my I just function so much better when those three things are being nourished. Yet, as we get busy, I feel like something falls off. At the least first thing to the- go is the
3: gym, for sure. Yeah,
1: oh, the gym. Absolutely the gym because that's the easiest one to walk away from if you have yeah. to physically go somewhere. Yeah. So what did we do? Well, we got all things Peloton now, right? So now all I have to do is walk out to my garage. That's too much, right? So it's something that has to be—you have to be constantly forcing, not forcing yourself, but it has to stay front of mind. And I'm—I'm I'm just interested, Josh. I mean, I know that you're a very—you have a very active lifestyle. I did see—I um, did see your post this weekend about, you know, when you were were trying to get through the Ironman and and what happened with that. Having run several marathons and half marathons myself, I certainly understand the men- both the mental and physical game of distance running. I don't think I would ever aspire to try and do a, a triathlon, at least at this stage of my life. Talk a little bit about how you get your head right, man. How do, you, how do you prepare for what you're getting ready to deal with, whether it be something like that, or you're getting ready to go deliver a big keynote somewhere, or even back in the days when you were selling, what was your warm up? What was your pregame? How do, you, how do you get right in the head?
2: So my wife and I are doing a home renovation project right now. It's the first time I've gone through a home renovation project. And it is uh, loud and messy. And I want it to be quiet and calm. But quiet and calm is not the nature of a home renovation project. Home renovation projects by their nature are messy. And they call it demolition for a reason. So when you try to fight against the nature of something, it's a recipe for being anxious and upset all the time. If I expect to go to a family restaurant, and I expect it to be quiet and calm, I'm going to be sorely disappointed when I see kids running around and parents ignoring their kids, because that's the nature of a family restaurant. Um, sales has a nature too to it. right? so a world without people rejecting you and ghosting you and losing sales, and gatekeepers blocking you is not possible. And so when you expect that going in, that that's the nature of sales, it turns the volume down in the mind Of course, you go in with a hypothesis and do the best you can, but you also move in harmony with the thing. This isn't just sales. This is marathons. This is triathlons. This is home construction projects. I'm a member of a public pool where I go swim. If I expect there never to be urine in the pool, I'm going to be disappointed. (laughs) If I I expect kids not to be running around, I'm going to be disappointed. So step number one here is is, is to understand the harmony of the thing and to be in harmony with it. The problem is most people aren't aware of their thoughts. So what ends up happening is they start to go into this downward spiral and they think this home construction project is a mess. These guys are late. They didn't say, they didn't do what they said they were going to do. They said they were going to do this and they didn't do it. The pain is dripping and they illuminate, ruminate over this and it ruins their whole day. Sometimes their week. sometimes a year. So the muscle to work here is to even be aware that you're having these thoughts and then to understand the nature of the thing. So you can simply observe the thought and say, oh, okay, that's just a home renovation project. And dripping is part of it. And people being late is part of it. And projects running over budget is part of it. And things taking longer than they expect is part of it. So that's really step one. Um, The way you work that muscle, because if you want to get good at things, you have to practice it, is through mindfulness coaching and training. Um, The way I do that every morning is I listen to 10 minutes of Sam Harris on the waking up app. It's the best use of 10 minutes that I can think of, because if you don't have control over your mind, and most people don't, most people are just reacting to their thoughts all day, not even aware. Um, it's really tough to have a, a good life I'm uh, in all candor. So every morning for 10 minutes, I like brushing my teeth. I prioritize it because I know if I don't, I start to get wrapped up in my thoughts again. And sometimes I don't realize it. Um, as I do mindfulness, I realize it faster. But without mindfulness training, you can go your whole life and not even realize your you're, a, you're sort of a slave or a puppet to the strings of your thoughts, which you don't really control. I mean, people think things all the time, where are these thoughts coming from? I mean, if I, David, if I hooked up a speaker to your thoughts right now, they would think you're crazy because you're so random <laughs> all over the place and because we don't control them, but we do control how we react to them. And step one here is to just be an observer of them. And you'll notice that when you observe your thoughts, it, it just sort of, they have a short shelf life. It's sort of like another thought comes in oh, we're having sushi for dinner tonight. And now I'm not thinking about the pain dripping.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So let's run with that for a second, because I think it brings up an interesting point. And it's certainly something that I think it doesn't matter what the product or the service is that you're selling. It's a matter of perspective and one that I think is really, really important. So using your home renovation as an example, you know, I think about If you went into that and you had the wrong perception of what to expect, and and coincidentally, during COVID, I went through the exact same thing. Really wish you would have called me because I couldn't give you the straight and narrow on what to expect because we had everything from ceilings ripped out and raised to new flooring put down and paint and like literally everything in the four walls that we live in, with the exception of my wife and my my bedroom was completely redone because we didn't have anything else to do and we had had saved some money because we wanted to do this and we did it all at one time and we made a horrible mistake and decided we were going to live in the house while this was happening with four kids, which was and and two golden retrievers, which is a whole other story. But you know, I think about it from the standpoint of if you went to if you decided you weren't engaged with the company, and I, I literally thought this when we were going through it, because we didn't know what to expect. We had absolutely no idea. Our house went from looking like a normal home to an absolute war zone overnight. And we had no idea that it was going to look that bad. We had no idea how long it was going to be that way. And I thought to myself, you know what? And one of my clients is actually the one who did all of this. So I did actually reach out to him. And I said, you know, it would be really, really good if you had a way for your clients to know kind of what to expect during this entire process, not the buying and the picking out of samples and all of this other stuff, but like when the first hammer hits their house, what's this look like? You know, reasonably, what can we expect? And I don't think people necessarily want to know like a finite answer to that, but I certainly would have liked to have known, probably want to cover up some stuff so it doesn't get dusty. Probably want to make sure that you're sweeping down the floors at night after we leave. Need to understand that, you know, whatever the thing is. But I feel like so many times as salespeople, we're putting our prospects in that exact position because we didn't lay it out for them in a way that they could understand exactly what it is that they were going to get into. And yet we can't figure out why they're not responding to us the way that they that we want them to.
2: Yeah, I think there's a, there's a couple of interesting things to chat about there first, which is Even if you cover up clothes and you do all the things, uh, your clothes are still going to get dirty (laughs) because the nature of construction project is dirt, right? So this idea of knowing what to expect to your point and then being in harmony with it is a really great first step. Um, With regards to prospects, I think salespeople have a tendency to think that they have to be the fillers of the knowledge. Um, They have to be able to fill the prospect's head with all this information, where I have found most of the time is you don't have to do that. Uh, what you really have to do is align with the motivation that they already have. So with your example, rather than going into a, a what I call lecture mode or giving people a TED talk on something, um, I might start by not making a statement at all, but by merely asking a question. I'll give you an example. So this is a Garmin 945 watch. It's the newest. If you're not watching this podcast, you're listening to it. It's a fancy triathlon watch that does a bunch of things. Tracks your swimming, traps your running, your biking, it's got a thing for mountain climbing. It does like 50 different things. Um, I had the predecessor of this watch, the Garmin 35, and I walked into a store and I was looking at the Garmin watches. And rather than the salesperson said, let me tell you about these Garmin watches and what to expect, he asked me a great question. He said, um, what do you know about Garmin watches? Now my answer could have gone in a couple different directions. This is my first one, or I've had like four of these before it's my first one, that's going to be a different talk track than if I've had four of these before. So I said, well, I've had the 735 and I've had the 635. So I'm not. To, I'm looking at the new ones. And he goes, how come you just don't want to stay with your 735? And I said, well, I want music to run with. He goes, oh, let me show you how that works. I got a Spotify list synced up to this one. Here's some AirPods. You can go for a run right now and check it out. Right? So he didn't tell me about the whole 35. He didn't give me a lecture on what to expect. He merely Ask me a question to get out what my underlying motivations were. Um, and this is the same thing when we actually reach out to people cold. We might think we have to say the reason for my call is that we help you do X, Y, and Z. When in actuality, what we don't realize is the prospect already knows what you do. They don't care what you do because they're already getting the job done. So this idea of switching statements into questions, very specific questions, aimed at getting people to think a little differently about their current solution, um, is to me a better approach than going into sort of full lecture. Let me explain it. And let me think that it's my job to sort of talk you in and fill your head with information. And I can give you, a, you know, just, just one more example is from a cold call that I received, probably one of the best ones I ever got from a woman by the name of Kendra. When she worked at a company called uh, Gravy Solutions, she called me up. Uh, I was in the phone with my wife, and the car with my wife. Phone rings. I pick it up. I say, hello. And she goes, hey, Josh, this is Kendra with gravy. I didn't actually expect you to pick up. I'm at the drive through at, at Starbucks. And I said, oh, uh, how can I help you, Kendra? She goes, hey, Josh, I know you sell courses. You got like a membership site. How are you recovering failed credit card payments today? Are you doing that yourself? Or are you working with like an outsourced recovery service? And I said, I don't have that problem because I use Stripe. And she said, oh, it sounds like you're logging into Stripe every week and checking your failed credit card payment report.
1: By the way, she just just labeled you. yeah. Yeah.
2: Just I don't even know what that is. And she goes, well, if you'd like, I can send you instructions and you can check to see if you have that problem. And if so, we can continue the conversation. And she sent me instructions. That I didn't have that problem, but what she didn't do was say, the reason for my call is that we've discovered a breakthrough in credit card payment recovery. And the reason I'm calling is to share this breakthrough with you to have your calendar handy, assuming that I have this problem, right? So the idea here is to let go of assumptions And to ask questions to see and discover and let the prospect discover their own reasons. So what you typically hear on these calls is, well, how does that work? And now the prospect is leaning forward rather than you starting filling their head. So it's a very counter approach because traditional sales is all about control, controlling next steps, controlling what the prospect says, overcoming objections. In my world, there's no such thing as objections because there's resistance and resistance is part of the nature of sales, but there's no objections. Someone saying, I have a vendor for that is not an objection. They do have a vendor for that because everyone's running in sneakers when you reach out to them, right? So this idea of moving with and surrendering control is the sort of opposite of the traditional sales approach. But I have found it's not only uh, better for the the seller because it just takes all the pressure off because we're selling like a scientist, not a salesperson. We have a hypothesis, but we're not attached to any outcome. And it's also better for the prospect because they don't feel the pinch of the sale.
1: Well, I think it's probably extremely difficult for the salesperson too, because they have to rewire how they think, right? To a certain degree. I mean, we've had people on here that are that are gurus and have very successful companies from a, a telemarketing perspective, right? And I will tell you right now that what you said not to do, it would be the absolute first thing that they told you to do. I have this breakthrough. I have to show you, can I get 27 seconds of your time with the logic being, oh, let me give you an odd number so that it sounds like it's legitimate and it's only going to take that long. And I think that, you know, what you're, I can hear when you talk, A, you know, the mindfulness, stoicism, Zen approach mixed with the things that you learn and some of the techniques you learn from Voss in Never Split the Difference. I mean, I've read the book 15, at least 15 times, I, two or three years ago, when I I think it was two years ago, bought the masterclass because on Father's Day, they have buy one, get one free. So bought it, gave it to my dad and kept the free one for myself and listened to that probably close to a dozen times. And I think it's really, really interesting, man, when you think about it, because I think that the majority, when you talk to salespeople, and I would be interested in your perspective in this, I know what it's like in the insurance world. When I talk to salespeople... To tell them to slow down their cadence and pay attention to the inflection of their voice when they're asking questions, and then just having no problem with letting it be quiet for a second so the other person can process and answer is huge. Like, I don't consider myself to be near an expert on FBI hostage negotiation techniques, but what I can do is mirror people. You know, and I can practice doing that. I think when we talk about practicing as salespeople, so many times it's memorizing a script or memorizing those key points that you just got to get out because that's what we've proven worked. Whereas there's so much more to the game that really needs to be focused on. And I liken that to how we sell here at, at Florida Risk, in that everybody, is premium sensitive, right? We're all price conscious. I'm not saying that that we sell on price. There are a lot of places that do, but I'm never I've never been a big fan of using the word price and in the insurance world I've never been a big fan of using premium. I use cost because cost is a much broader term and there are so many things that businesses specifically have flowing through their financials in addition to the premium they pay for insurance that's actually part of their risk management budget. That if I was just an insurance salesman, I'd miss all of that and would miss out on a lot of opportunities to help people make an impact on their organization as a result. So I think that the daily, the daily habit of the 10 minutes of, of using the app from a mindfulness standpoint is spot on. But there's a lot more that we have to do to make ourselves better. You know, what are some other techniques that you that you use or that you have seen successful salespeople use that you think would be beneficial for our audience?
2: Well, I don't think it's your job or my job to have people change, right? So people don't like being told what to do. So when people hire me to come in for a sales training, it's typically someone like you who's been following me for a while, but I get in front of an audience of three or 400 people, the three or 400 people in the audience have no idea who I am. And they are being told that they have to be in this training session. I mean, it's almost like if you were taking piano lessons as a young person and you didn't do it for intrinsic reasons. You did it because your parents made you take piano lessons and you hated it. And I talk to people all the time that if my mom experienced this. She was a concert pianist. She didn't like it. She was forced into it. And now she won't play the piano at all. She's actually like scarred, right? So when we sort of think it's our job to tell people what they should do, uh, people don't like that very much. It's called uh, reacting, people want agency. Over their decisions. So what we want, what we might want to do, is ask people how their sales approaches working for them. And you might want to say something like, "Sounds like you're not you're knocking it out of the park. Sounds like it's it's perfect. You're hitting quota every every quarter." And if they say, "I am," you might say, "How are you doing that?" Right. So you're not going to come from this place of you need me to tell you that you're not doing your job right. You're actually coming from a place where I'm not going to make any of those assumptions. And then they say, "Well, no, things could things could get better. Um, what have you tried?" we got this sales training here. I know you don't want to be here. You could have faked a sickness, said you had a stomach ache, <laughs> not come to Key West. Um, what uh, what are you hoping to get out of it? Right? So what I'm doing here is I'm trying to find the other person's motivation for change rather than giving them my motivation. This is sort of rooted in a psychological uh, approach called motivational interviewing uh, that's typically used to help people get over trauma or things like addiction. Uh, but we're, what we're trying to do is find their reasons for change rather than giving them your reasons. It's the same thing with my you know, prospecting or cold calling approach. I'm trying, again, to ask questions that get the prospect to scratch their head and think, what do you mean? I'm not sure how I go about doing that, right? So it's, it's a little bit of a different, it takes a little bit of a different skill set, but it's grounded in not doing TED Talks. It's grounded in, and you mentioned Chris Voss, uh, this is a very much making people feel heard and understood. Because ultimately, you're sort of in the business of trust. And if you're talking at people, you're not developing trust. It's actually the opposite effect. It feels like you're being lectured by mommy or daddy. Yeah, I
1: agree. I actually talk about this a lot when I speak publicly, but one, you know, my wife is very extroverted, as am I for the most part. I don't like work in the room. Like I don't like. I'm not the guy that's going to be out glad glad handing. I'm happy to have a conversation with a complete stranger at any given time, but if you want me to just be the politician who's shaking hands and kissing babies, that's not my skill set. I feel like um, there are people who are really, really good at that, and I'm just not one of them. And so she wanted me to go to a cocktail party for her job one time and I told her I said I'll go because you always support me but I'm just going to let you know I'm going to mirror and label everybody all night that's the only thing I'm going to do for the entire 2 or 3 hours that we're going to be there I want you to understand this is exactly what's going to happen and I think I maybe even read about it you know Voss doing something like that in something that he had put out I don't remember where it was but um so for like, 2 or 3 like hours at a
3: party like just non-related yeah, to 100% you just, you know, so yeah.
1: Yeah, so we're we're there, and like literally for two or three hours, I engaged in multiple conversations with people, and I would mirror and label and be very very interested in what they were saying, and didn't really think much about it until Monday. And we were here in sales meeting one Monday, and she's like blowing up my phone on Facebook Messenger, and she's like, "What the hell did you do Friday night?" I said, "What are you, what are you talking about?" And she said, "I'm on my conference calls with everybody, you know, with with the brass at, at work." and every single one of them can't stop talking about you. I said, what do you you mean? They said, they said, by far, you were the most interesting person that they got a chance to meet at the party and that you were really engaged in conversation, that you took the time to listen to what they had to say. And I said, honey, I said, I swear to God, I did nothing different than what I told you I was going to do. I mirrored and labeled them. And at some point we were engaged in conversation and we carried a normal conversation, but it proves the point that People find interested people interesting, period. And I think that we do a really bad job at that as salespeople most of the time because, as Josh said, we're giving TED Talks, right? Now, there's yeah. a certain amount of education that has to be done in what we do. But I think that we force feed it to people instead of letting them maybe take the buffet approach and go back up and pick a, a portion the size they want and ingest that as they feel fit.
3: Yeah. I think, I think so the point too about just like being quiet and shutting up after saying something is huge and our nature as salespeople is to want to diffuse that dead time, but we got to let them think and process the stuff that we were just talking about. You jump back in and you start you know, going over your next point, or you remember something that maybe you left out that's an additional feature, or whatever the situation is, you totally just interrupted their train of thought. And maybe they were going down a road of, okay, that makes sense to me. I wonder if they can do this. And then now that's gone because you couldn't just sit there and stop talking.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that the example that David brought up is an interesting one. I have a slightly different take on that. I mean, you went to that event, even though it's not in your nature to hobnob, as you put it, right? So it's not in your nature. It's not your sort of sweet spot to go and and small talk with people. It's It's not who you are. Some people it is, it's not who you are. Whenever you get into these situations that are not in your nature, um, what ends up happening is you have to behave in a different way um, for s- someone else. And you can certainly do that for a little bit, but eventually that's going to sort of grate on you if you're to do that like 15 or 20 times, right, imagine in the course of a year. Um, there's also nothing wrong with saying, you know, hey, uh, Jenna, uh, I know your, your parents are coming over and they're going to be spending a week with us in the house, um, but I can't sit around and talk to your parents all day in the house. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to spend an hour with your dad in the morning. We'll drink some coffee or tea. And then I'm going to disappear for like six or seven hours. Because if I stay in the house, I'm just going to upset everybody. And I'll come back for dinner. Because my nature is I can't really be in that house. And I think it's okay for everyone to talk about what their nature is. Maybe your wife likes this. Maybe you like that. But we don't have to always conform to be able to do and be who we don't want to be and use techniques like Chris Voss to sort of get through the day. Now, it's different if you want to go and you want to kind of work out your muscles, but if you're kind of going against your nature too much, it's going to be a problem. I mean, my dad, um, he passed away at uh, 53. And what I realized through therapy and through a lot of um, work with mindfulness and even psychedelics was that he was an artist trapped as a lawyer. So I would have rem- had flashbacks of him doing photography and playing the bass guitar and dancing and riding a Harley, which he had. And that came up during these uh, psychedelic experiences. But he was forced into being an attorney by his parents. It wasn't in his nature. He did it to support his family. But eventually, what ended up happening was it made him depressed, eventually. And ultimately, I think, led to some of the illness that he had because it was going against his nature. Um, He used to love playing pool with his friends in New Jersey. And his parents, he succumbed to them and moved to Florida. And he bought a pool table for the house. And I remember him playing, but it wasn't the same because it was by himself. He did it but he was very closed off. So I would warn everybody if you're listening to this to sort of be true to your nature and stand up for yourself to a degree and tell people, you know, the truth, this isn't my jam. Um, This is what I'll do. I'll I'll go to the party for like an hour or so, but then I'm going to sort of go out because this is not like who I am because those things I think add up and can make you, I think ultimately sick.
1: (laughs) Well, I can tell you what, man. I mean, and I I say this not in a joking way. I have an ex-wife for that very reason. Like I, my, the, the wife that I have now is my second wife. And I will tell you, I grew up in a very conservative home. Uh, We were, we had rules that we had to follow. We were going to be in church every Sunday, every Wednesday night. And I found myself wanting to marry the person that I thought would give my parents approval. Right. Not necessarily that we had a horrible relationship or anything, but once all of that went south and we decided, you know what? This is irreconcilable. We have no choice. We need to get a divorce because we're both going to end up in jail otherwise. And I married I married <laughs> Andrea, who's my best friend. It's a completely different animal. And I tell people that all the time. I tell younger people, make sure you're marrying the person that you want to marry, not anybody else, because I married who thought would make my parents happy the first time. The second time I married who made me happy. And it's a completely different experience. And I think that proves kind of what you were saying. You I obviously wasn't doing that intentionally (laughs) based on this, but I can agree with you wholeheartedly on that. That's that's 100% the case. I think we could even translate that a little bit into what we do in sales as well, specifically insurance. I mean, when we talk about working with producers to identify who are your ideal prospects or what niches do you want to get into if you're going to be niche-focused, why would you go pick a niche, you know, Maybe there's a niche that pays a lot of money, but you have no interest, no passion about it or anything else. how How successful are you going to be knowing you're going to get up and do something you hate every single day? You, you'll actually make more money if you find where your heart is, and the money always follows.
3: People are going to listen to this and be like, "Yeah, you know, cold calling not really my jam. I just think I need to do something else to get business in here. I'm not going to get on yeah. the phones today. Yeah,
1: yeah, well, <laughs> then they need to get out and wear out shoe leather.
3: For sure.
2: Well, here's the thing that's an interesting one because I hear this oftentimes too, right? I talk to people that don't want to, they think the phone is a cactus, right? They don't like to interrupt people. It's not in their nature, um, which means maybe sales isn't in their nature, or maybe they do inbound, or maybe they do product marketing or all these other things, but it's not for everyone, right? And so it's not our job to say, let me teach you how to make cold calls. If it's not in my name, if it's not in David's nature to go to the event and socialize, he might do it one or two times. And he might turn it into a learning experience for himself. And I commend him for <laughs> making lemonade out lemons in that situation. I think it's an interesting idea. Like if I'm going to go, I may as well try to practice some skills. Um, but eventually, um, that is going to, you know, catch up to you. And um, so this idea that sort of stay true to yourself. Um, I work with sales organizations all the time. I was actually talking to a um, sales leader um, a couple of days ago when he's like, how do I get this guy's like great on the phone, but doesn't like to do email or doesn't like to do videos. I'm like, let's leave him on the phone. Like, <laughs> Move, move with him. And if someone likes to do email, let them do email. And if someone likes to do video, let them do video. But this idea of forcing everyone to do everything, it's not in his nature or her nature. If this person hates the phone and they can't stand it, no amount of coercing and mindfulness training or whatever is going to get that person to like the phone. There's plenty of people that are okay making phone calls. Like find those people. <laughs> right. You know, it's just like, just like this. We I do this simulation all the time when I sales training. I say, okay, here's a scenario. Uh, You sell grass-fed beef delivered to your door. You are one meeting away from a fifty-thousand-dollar spiff. And this call, if they agree to a meeting, it's going to put you over into your bonus, and you're going to get Presidents Club with your wife, go on a Caribbean vacation. So here's the scenario: you make the call, the person picks up, you give your little pitch, and they say, "This. I'm sorry, I'm a vegan." I've been a vegan for 30 years. I don't believe in killing animals for food. What do you say? And so every every salesperson thinks that's an objection and they try to change that person's mind rather than saying, it's not a good idea to sell meat to vegans. Even if I have a $50,000 bonus and I'm attaching my happiness to it, there's not a there there. There's no objection to overcome here. The right thing to do here is to just find people that are not vegans. And there's a lot of people that aren't vegans. go, go have a conversation with them, pick up the phone and try someone else. Right. So it's this idea that we're for everyone. We got to make all the, everyone's got to make cold calls. Everyone's got to do this. No, they don't. It's not in their nature to do it. And, or I know another organization, this person's knocking out of the park with their meetings, but they won't pick up the phone. I'm like, fantastic. Like if they could book their quota with emails and not pick up the phone, that sounds phenomenal. Why do you want them to pick up the phone? Well, they could be doing more. I'm like, well, we could all be doing more. So can you, but if they're hitting their quota, and that's good enough, then let them do that. Or do you want them to pick up the phone and be miserable? And I would argue their quota is going to go down. Their meeting number is going to go down. Because now you're taking them away from what their, their their nature is, and you're forcing them into this other thing. And you might even lose them, right? So there's this, there's this idea that everyone has to sort of be told and pigeonholed into things. And I think people have a nature to them. And we find what that is, and we move with that rather than trying to force them into something else.
1: Yeah cuz I can promise you I'd just hire an appointment setter for that person. If they if they're not good on the phones, <laughs> let me just go hire somebody to set appointments. They're the best at what they do. You're the best at what you do. Now everybody wins.
2: Look, you're a basketball it sounds like you're a basketball person. I mean, look, look like with the exception of maybe like a Michael Jordan who was a, you know, freak of nature, most people have strengths on a basketball team. <laughs> this person's good at this this person when this situation happens we give the ball to that person. It's you know, it's a, but in sales we think everyone has to be a Michael Jordan No, they don't. <laughs> you know that's not it's not just not true
1: yeah i agree i i think that it happens a lot too like even with leadership right i think so many times we get preconceived as to what what's a leader look like right and and we know you know it, the the dilbert had a thing um years and years and years ago where it was you know it was very sarcastic say Dilbert. A, yeah a guy <laughs> the comic strip man back when i we know, we we know what it is
3: but like that's yeah.
1: But no, it was, it was it was funny. It was sarcastic because they were talking about a guy that was working at the company and he was getting ready to get, you know, they, they were looking at him to be an executive or be in leadership or whatever. And they're like, oh, and it's a bonus. His hair's going to turn silver in the next couple of years. Like it was all about the picture perfect executive. Right. And we see him all the time, man. Like I, when we were, I met with the president of Lloyd's London in New York back at the beginning of May. And when he walked in, I elbowed the guy next to me. I'm like, is there like an actual cookie cutter? Is there a training program that these guys all go through to all look the same? Because they literally slick back hair, you know, silvering hair, all very trim, likely runners or or cyclists or whatever. You know, there's there's a formula that they use. And I think that it's interesting. And I always go back to when I was in retail way back when, told this story a couple of times, but I remember going in and my job was not what I originally had signed up for. I was forced to go overnight right after Grayson was born and handle replenishment and logistics with the promise I was going to be out, but I needed to build a team and find my replacement. And they said, but you got to watch out for James because James is a, is a, he's a, he's a cancer. He is going to make your life absolutely miserable. And I thought to myself in all my infinite wisdom at like 26, 27 years old, James is my new project. Sounds like James is somebody I need to get close to very, very quickly. And so paid attention to what would happen. And every single night, James would show up 20, 30 minutes late to work, walk in. He had been written up countless times, been counseled countless times. He was probably on final warning for three years. They just never did anything with him. (laughs) And so it finally happened one night, you know, I I had enough and I decided I needed to find out what's going on with this guy. So I I pulled him to the side and I was like, look, man, he goes, do you fire me? And I said, no, I'm not going to fire you unless you do something stupid in this conversation. I said, so let's, let's chat for a second. I said, I'm not dumb. You come in 20 or 30 minutes late every single night. I can't imagine somebody wants to be late for work, knowing they're in trouble. What's going on? Tell me what's causing you to be 20 or 30 minutes late and he said my wife works 3 to 11 i physically can't get here until 20 to 30 minutes after she, you know she gets home and the earliest i can get here is 20 minutes because she gets off a little early and usually it's going to be 30 minutes cuz she we she works between 5 and 10 minutes away from the house and i said so is this really as simple as me just changing your schedule till 11:30 if i make it if i make your schedule schedule 11:30 or better yet 12 and just have you work an hour later is that going to solve your problem? He said, yeah, absolutely. It's going to solve my problem. I said, and why didn't anybody do this before? He said, because everybody just wanted me to be here when they wanted me here. They didn't take the time to ask. He said, it was actually on my availability on my application when I got the job. And I said, let me ask you a question, man. I said, has anybody ever asked you about going into leadership training? I said, I feel like you would have a really, really good career if if somebody were to do this. And he said, why? Everybody's trying to fire me. I said, because I, notice, I know, notice how people react to you when you get here. When we are doing the replenishment activities, people are far more productive after you've showed up and you're working with them and they follow you. You set the tone for what happens with this crew. And so while you may have been painted in a negative light in the past, I recognize the influence you have over other people. And if we can channel that into positive, I think you could have a really successful career leading a team, whether it's here or anywhere else. And he said, Would you you would be willing to invest in me? And I said, I would absolutely be willing to invest in you. I'd put my name behind that. Well, sure enough, we run the guy through management training. He is not he's a store team leader for Target, making a quarter million dollars a year when he was on final warning for showing up 20 to 30 minutes late. Point being, you leadership comes in all shapes and sizes, and it's not always positive, and it's not always meant for what we want it. But, I mean, look at the guys that are influencing people to join street gangs, for crying out loud. It can't be argued that they don't have leadership ability, right? You got some level of it. Definitely. They're not channeling it for what I would personally channel it for, but... You know, when you have the ability, and that might not be the best example, but I mean, I love it. I, I, I certainly think the one with James is because here's a guy that had one foot out the door, and now he's had a successful career because somebody was actually willing to a listen and b take a chance So Kyle, you've been awful quiet, man. what What kind of insightful question do you have at this point? i'm on no, I am i the have been
3: listening to you guys go back and forth. I mean, I know the James story obviously is a good one. But I think that I think that's that's part of it though is, is a it's lot of It's also kind of like
1: the Kyle story from when you know you were
3: point guard on your high school basketball team. Uh, sort of. Yeah. But um but yeah I, I think a lot of times we don't slow down to just ask the questions and and you know figure out what's really on people's mind. I think that's I think that's part of it. You know, as salespeople we sit here and we try to dictate what people are going to think like we've mentioned on your you know, like, like Josh kind of alluded to earlier, but I mean, I don't, I don't know, man. Like, so, so Josh, obviously like you go out and you, you coach people and you know, you help them with sales training. Like what is besides not slowing down and asking those questions? What's like a a super common mistake that you see from salespeople who are just not getting it done?
2: I'll tell you a story. And the name of the story is, are you selling sneakers to people that have sneakers? (laughs) So this is a true story. It takes two minutes to tell. Several years ago, I was in the mall with my wife and I didn't need anything. We were gonna go grab lunch at Fit to Run. I'm sorry, at a uh, True Food Kitchen in the mall, Town Center Mall. And just just get, to kill some time, I walked into a fit to run store, not needing anything. So if the store associate said, What brings you in today, Kyle, what do you think I would have said?
3: Just shop looking around. Just
2: just killing time. Just looking around. Yeah. Just killing time. If she said, uh, can I help you? What do you think I would have said?
3: No, I'm good. I'm just looking.
2: If she said you got any problems with your sneakers, what do you think I would have said?
3: No. No. Oh,
1: seemed to be doing well. No, no.
2: If she said, we got these new Brooks Ghosts on special, I would have said, I'm not interested. But she didn't do any of those things. Instead, she looked down at my sneakers and she said, are you a runner? And I said, yeah, I am. And she goes, you got any races coming up? I go, well, I'm actually training for my first half marathon. And then she said this, you've probably had a running gait test. And I scratch my head for a second and go, what is that? And moments later, I'm on a treadmill in the store. <laughs> I, have video, I, have, I have video of this. I can show it to you. I actually showed it at the workshop. We'll show, we'll show it in the keys. She freezes the frame and she zooms in on my ankles. And she goes, notice how your ankles are overpronating when you run. And I said, yeah. So she goes, well, the problem is if you run into sneakers that are not made for pronated feet, you increase your chances of getting plantar fasciitis and runners. Hmm which can sideline you. If you'd like, I could take a look at your sneakers to see if they're made for pronated feet. And about eight minutes later, I'm spending $180 on new sneakers and insoles. the moral (laughs) of the story is no matter what you sell, your prospects have sneakers today and they're running in them and they're making progress because if they weren't, they'd be calling you and your competitors. So the superpower that you start with after working through intent, which we talked about is what do you know your prospect doesn't know that can hurt them? And what you do is you don't approach it like a salesperson. you approach it like a scientist. You think like a scientist, not a salesperson. What does a scientist do? They form a hypothesis. They're not attached to the result or an expectation of how the experiment's going to end. But their idea is to shine a light by asking a question on a potential problem. And then they test their hypothesis without being attached or having expectations to where it's going to go. And some prospects will lean forward and want to have a conversation with you, and some won't. And that's the nature of having conversations. And it's just very freeing. And so the I, the superpower is you have to know something that your prospect doesn't know. It's not about a value proposition. It's not about faster sneakers. It's not about saving time or saving money, which are these generic phrases. It's about having a point of view, a strong perspective on the terrible, no good, very bad thing that happens if your prospect keeps running on their sneakers. And the reason I say terrible, no good, very bad thing is that we know from prospect theory that prospects are more likely to change because to avoid some terrible thing happening than for gain. So we don't want to ask, you know, if I could 10x your revenue, would you be interested? That's a very sort of leading question that's based on some gain. What we want to say is, oh, you've probably had a running gate test. Or like some of the work, like with Gong is developing a talk track for Gong, which is a a technology that helps people do more accurate forecasts. So John, typically when I talk to VPs, they're running out to the sales pit, and they're asking the reps opinion about which deals will close. And they're kind of spin through the pipeline. How have you been putting your forecast together today? Well, we've been doing X, Y, and Z. Um, how's that been going? Is it sounds like it's been pretty accurate. Well, not like very accurate, but like accurate enough. Oh, um, are you able to identify at-risk deals without actually having to ask someone's opinion about if deals will close? like based on actual data and conversations that I've haven't taken place. What, what do you mean? What, what, what's that? So you see the difference there? I'm not pitching anything, but now I've opened up. Well, what, what, what Gong does is it surfaces deals that are at risk based on data, not opinions. How does that work? Let's schedule some time to talk about it. No, I'm kind of calling you out of the blue. What I haven't done is said, we've discovered a breakthrough in conversational intelligence that helps you more accurately predict your forecast. And the reason for my call, there's that phrase again, is to get 15 minutes on your calendar. I'm a scientist. I'm approaching this with a scientific mind and I'm shining a light on a potential problem without really expecting it to go anywhere. To see if the prospect kind of leans forward. So that's the that's the sort of approach in a nutshell, which is but it starts with intent and then having a hypothesis. And most so, and most people and most people I talk to are my value proposition is we got faster sneakers. Well, yeah. they already have fast, they already have sneakers. Their sneakers are fast enough. So this concept of What's the, what's the terrible no? This concept of first off, this concept of everyone's getting the job done today kind of blows everyone's minds, meaning they're, they're already doing forecasting. Yeah. They're doing forecasting. They're determining payouts. They're running commission statements. They're doing all those things without you just fine. So that kind of blows someone's mind automatically. Like, let me show you how they're doing it today. What steps can you help them avoid? Is it just one step or is it like nine steps? Right? So we, we sort of get, think differently. And then we turn that into specific questions with tonality that gets people to sort of scratch their head and says, you know, I can't really do that that easily. What do you guys have? There's a sort of polarity shift that happens right, yeah. from the salesperson talking to the prospect interviewing the, the salesperson. Like there's this flip that happens during the call. It's interesting when you listen to this, where the where the prospect is asking the questions and now they're paying attention. Because if you're mm-hmm. talking at someone like I'm doing now, you're losing.
1: Right. <laughs> yeah no, i I think that and for the insurance producers out there that have heard us talk about what I would say, i i don't I really don't like the word script that much because I don't I think sales is too fluid to have a script. I think you you can have bullets that you want to bring up, but it, for all practical purposes, this is more like a script, but you know, it's the one that we call two knows two a yes, and the reason why is because of what I've read, again, with Voss and some other people about how the human human brain is wired subconsciously to feel in control of the conversation when you utter the word no and specifically this is why we use this with experience mod analysis on workers comp we can get the data we know if somebody is has an experience mod of a 1.5 we know that if you are multiplying base premium by 1.5 that that person is paying 50% more than they would if their experience mod was a 1.0, which is average. So there's a lot of things working here. They're paying more than they should than average, right? Who wants to be average? Most people don't even want to be average. They want to be better than average. But in our world, a lot of the times, they didn't know they could get better than 1.0 because nobody ever told them. They never stopped mm-hmm. and explained how it worked, right? And then number three, they haven't ever I had can, anything-
2: can, can, we stay, can we stay on that one for a second? That's yeah, a go interesting ahead. one, right? So if I was to use that, and I'm not an expert in what you do, but just based on what you said, I might very well say in a very calm way when I call someone, "Hey, uh, John, I, I know you have a, a 1.5 mod score, which typically means you're overpaying anywhere from 40 to 5, 50% on workers' comp. How are you currently going about reducing that rate today?" Yeah, and I don't know if I'll, that's the right. And you, could, you could probably that, help me with that, this language. No, that's, that's one the sort of idea.
1: What what I do is I just say, you know, we we've done the research. There, you know, I'm calling today because your experience mods are 1.5. And I just had a quick question. Are you happy that you're paying at least 50% more than your peer group for your workers' comp? Because I know I can get them to a no with that, right? Mm-hmm. And I want them to feel in touch with the conversation. And if they say, Well, I, most of the time, Josh, they don't even know, right? They don't even know what the mod is or how it works, but they'd certainly know what paying 50% more is, regardless of what that number is. And our follow up to that is well in, in the last couple of years, and I'm going to actually modify this based on the, the treadmill story. But the follow up that to be well, well, I'm 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 certain you've had somebody come in and use their software to audit your experience modification factor to determine that it's accurate. And now that I, if their mods are 1.5, it's even more likely nobody's ever done that. Yeah. So the the easy way, you know, that's a very easy way for us to close an appointment because we move to well, since you're not happy and nobody's audited your mod, wouldn't you agree that it makes sense for us to spend just a, you know 15 or 20 minutes of planned time so that we can show you how we use this to save companies like yours tens, if not hundreds of thousands of bucks?
2: So I really like that second question. And we, we should talk about this because the first one to me feels like a little bit of a trap, right? Um, are you happy that you're paying over than what your your, com- your your competitive companies are doing? It almost feels like you're tr- trying to get me to say, well, a court, it's like saying, if I could 10X your revenue, would you want to talk to me? It's almost like I feel like I'm being led into this trap versus what I'm suggesting is to sort of let them draw their own conclusion. Like, how are you going about, you know, dealing with that today? What do you mean? Like, what do you mean? How am I dealing? I, I don't know. How am I, I I don't know. It's almost like you want to confuse. It's almost like you want to ask a question. It's a little hard to answer rather than saying, you're not happy with this, are you? It, it's, it's a subtle thing, but I think I don't know how to wordsmith this. It'd be interesting to talk to you about this a little bit. Let's, let's leave that aside. Let's actually try this. Let's leave your version a second. Help me workshop mine a little bit. So if I were to say, hey, Josh, I, I, I ran a, an analysis on your uh, company, and uh, we're seeing that a lot of companies like yours that are at, that have a 1.5 mod are typically overpaying anywhere from 40 to 50% for their workers' comp. How have you been looking at ways to reduce that today? Like, is that... Like is that Dave, uh, help me... Work, like, I it's probably don't have it all, but like... Let's assume that they know that and let them, co- right. to boss, let them, let them correct us. Well, I didn't know that. Or, well, what we've done is we've actually brought in five people like you before. Don't you want to know that first? Well, what we've done, we've actually had 70 of you come in. How'd that go for you? uh mm-hmm. then, then maybe you created ver- versus like you assuming that they don't know. So it's a, it's a subtle thing, but your version, at least to me, and I'm not here to, I mean, for, I don't know your business. No, actually you're the this, best.
1: You're the best judge of it because the people we're calling aren't in the business either.
2: No, but if you're having success with this approach that you're already using and far be it for me to change it. But when I heard it, I was like, wow, you're, you're sort of making me feel bad. Like, I felt like you're, you're kind of guilt tripping and shaming me. I'm trying to figure out like, no, I don't want to be like my peers. I'm kind of being led, but what I'm approaching is, can we ask the question in a more neutral way and assume like, how have you Hmm. been, how have you been looking at that today? Like, how have you been, how have you been looking at ways to like reduce that? And I need your help here, David, a little bit because I don't know the business as well as you do. But what what might that sound like if you started off with, "Hey, John, you know, I know you guys have a 1.5. You know, typically when we see companies like yours that are 1.5, people are, you know, usually paying 40 to 50 percent more in their comp. Um, how have you been looking at ways to to bring your mod down? Maybe that's where prob- end it.
1: Yeah, I would probably say something like, "What are you? Do- how are you attacking that currently, or something along yes. those lines? Something like yes. a very aggressive." Yeah. Something like that. Cause you want to, yeah. you, I, they I agree with you. the answer
3: still going to be no, most of the time, like they're not going to have really right. done anything.
1: But I think that if you use a word like attacking, you're, you're choosing something like, I don't want to say something. And I, I think this is something that salespeople would make a mistake in saying, what are you doing proactively? Right? Because now you're putting them into a position where if they're you know, not still. doing anything, you've insulted right. them and they're not being proactive right. and, and it's going to be That's an right. issue. But if you say it in a way that makes it seem like they're attacking it with reckless abandon without putting the reckless abandon in, how are you yeah. attacking this currently? There's a certain connotation yes. with yes. that verb and boom, you're done, yes. right?
2: Yeah. Have you been going about, you know, getting that done? How are you been going about attacking? It's almost like to your point, listen to the difference between this, two sales people, right? One is they're mm-hmm. both selling windows. One salesperson, hey, David, notice your window is cracked. Why haven't you fixed it? <laughs> Second salesperson, notice your window is cracked. You've got a lot going on with the home renovation project. Is this something you want to get fixed or not really? Since you got so much going on. Mm-hmm. See, problem salesperson one is making the person feel bad that <laughs> they haven't fixed their window. Salesperson two is shining a light on a problem and assuming that they've looked into it. Right. Because maybe they have, and then let them correct you if they haven't. Like, I loved your like, how are you, how are you attacking it today? Presupposes that they're thinking about it, which mm-hmm. is why I like it. And then they could say, Well, we're not thinking about it, or we've done all these things. And don't you want to get that out? Then you can use labels and mirrors to sort of get more information. And maybe there's nothing, maybe they've looked at everything and it's, they're not a fit, or maybe there's an opening.
1: Yeah. And I can tell you that even if they list three things, chances are none of them is using Mod Advisor software to go in and do it because the business owner is not gonna have that tool and a lot of agents aren't gonna have that tool. So there's a high likelihood that if you say, well, I assume part of that process is, maybe not use the word assume, but I suspect that part of that process is that you've used software to analyze where you're at versus your peers, but also your best case scenario so that you can, you know, whatever with incremental progress or whatever else. But I mean, it's definitely, you're still getting to the same place at the end. So that,
2: that, that's a great place for a label, right? It sounds like you've used some software to bring that down. Mm-hmm. What do you mean? It sounds like you've used software to be able to bring your, your mod down. What yep. do you mean? Well, that's exactly what we do. Now, now, now you can start to, to, to position to a real illumination that they've kind of had on their own. Right. It's a very 100. different way to kind of get there. You, you kind of mm-hmm. save the pitch to the end. Rather than bringing it up to the beginning, right? So what I'm suggesting here is you 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 let them pull that out of you. What do you? How does that work? What do you mean? What what do you mean? Sounds like you've had a running gate test. Mm, Well, I have. I don't have pronated feet, right? So the the labeling thing and you've probably had those are really great ways to sort of get more information to see what they've looked into or not. Hundred percent.
1: Well, listen, man, you've been really generous with your time. We try and keep these to an hour. You know, you've talked a couple of times about workshops and stuff. I know you do have some things, I believe, that are on demand, and I know that you've got all kind. I mean, d- brother, we could talk for hours and hours and hours and not get through everything the way that my mind works. Um, but where can people get more Josh Braun aside from going and following you on LinkedIn, which should be be mandatory in my book for any salesperson in any industry?
2: Were too kind. Uh, so best thing to do is go to my website, uh, joshbraun.com slash newsletter. If you found this podcast useful, drop your email in there and uh, you will get some content like this delivered to your inbox when I feel like writing it. <laughs> or not. Go. If you don't want to do that, you don't have to do that either. It's okay either way.
1: <laughs> yeah, there you go. Well, listen, people, we're going to go ahead and wrap up. Josh has been gracious with his time today. He's coming down. He's going to spend a, a couple hours with us. At Producers in Paradise, if you're in Killing Commercial and coming down, it is going to be a blast. If you're not, mm, well, probably ought to talk about that at some point. But at the end of the day, we're all trying to just do what we can to help other people get better. And I think this was a great episode, man. The other thing is people be coachable, right? I was really proud of two no's to a yes until Josh just absolutely destroyed it (laughs) and gave me a better way to say it. And I'm not too proud to say that I'm not going to maybe make that tweak and and go out and try it and see what happens. That's the only way (laughs) any of us are going to get better. And here's what I know beyond a shadow of a doubt. Nationwide, we are in a hard insurance marketplace right now. Florida is the epicenter along with Texas, Louisiana, and California, but it is bad everywhere and everybody is shopping. This is the best. You can be really, really bad on the phones and get people to take appointments with you. So if you're worried about how you're going to flow and how this stuff works, just take it out and run with it, practice it, try it. This is the best time to do that. How many of us ever remember a really bad telemarketing call that we got? We could probably raise our hand and say we do, but then if you attach the name of the company to it, you got a world class memory. I don't remember stuff like that. I remember who did a bad job in interacting with me, but I don't ever carry around the company name with it. So don't be afraid. Get past the call reluctance. Pick up the phone and start dialing. Everybody, thanks so much for tuning in. We'll catch you next time. See ya.
0: You've been listening to the Power Producers Podcast.